The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Holy Father, would you make this book live to me? And if would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself, my sin? my weakness, my selfishness, my failure. And then would you show me my savior, the one who loved me enough to give his life as a ransom that I might be set free. Father, would you make this book live to me? It's in his name that we ask it, amen. Go and return to your feet one more time, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll be reading those first three verses together again this morning. It's the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And all God's people said, Amen. Maybe see So we continue this morning our consideration of what the Apostle Paul might call the worthy walk. The walk, the pattern of life that matches the weight and the beauty and the majesty of this high calling to which we have been called. Any of you that have ever had the opportunity to do any type of evangelism or discipleship, you know that oftentimes what happens is that a man is brought to the point of repentant faith and places his trust in Christ Jesus as Lord. And his next question is, now what? Christ is Lord. How then, then am I supposed to live? And our temptation is to give them a long list of things to do and a list of things not to do. Do go to church. Do read your Bible and do pray. Don't cuss and don't fight and don't drink and don't chew and don't go with girls that do. <laughs> and it's probably good counsel. The New Testament is filled with all kinds of commandments and prohibitions and and our job is to trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And that is a piece of this great commission that is missing for so many. They believe their job is to tell people the gospel and baptize them and then wish them well, forgetting that the Lord told us our job is to teach them to obey all that he has commanded. And so we do well to set some parameters and to give people the the commandments that God has issued to us in his word. But the Apostle Paul, he begins with something broader. As I've said to you over these last, I don't know, four or five Sunday mornings, he's setting for us more of a tone or a, a, a cadence, something much broader with regards to the Christian life. Because what God's building here is not a bunch of robots. He could have done that. He could have just built a bunch of automatons that just... They went from station A to station B to station C. But, but that's not what he's done. He's taken a bunch of 
fallen and frail and unique and quirky and weird individuals right where they are and then molds them into the image of his son using ordinary, common, everyday means. And so rather than giving us right out the gate a bunch of do's and don'ts, the Apostle Paul takes us to this, a picture of the worthy walk. And as I considered it this week, this really does seem like the perfect way of transitioning. How do we come from the therefore that begins this chapter, pointing backwards to all that great doctrine in those first three chapters, moving into all the imperatives and the way that we're meant to live in light of that, how do we do this in a way that isn't a jerking of the steering wheel? How, how do we make this adjustment in a way that doesn't throw everybody out of the bus and into the ditch? This seems like a good way to do it. And so if you've noticed, I promised you that, I don't want to say I promised, I hinted to you that when we got to the last half of Ephesians, things would speed up a little bit. But now instead what we find ourselves doing is entire sermons over one word. Things will speed up, but I really do think that there is something foundational about these patterns of the worthy walk that we need to get them settled in our mind. But also, I believe that what we're doing right now is we are setting the tone and the pattern for how we're going to approach all the commandments. I think so many people, they lose their way because they never slow down to ask I know what the world says that these words mean, but what does God actually mean by what he's actually said? And how do I not just know what God has said in a vacuum, but how do I know what this commandment means in light of the therefore? And so, it, as I told you last week, it's like we're kind of dipping our toe into the water and just kind of getting, getting used to what it's like and, and finding ourselves a little more comfortable each week. And so we began this picture of the worthy walk, or rather the Apostle Paul did, with a call to humility. You remember that we settled on the fact that humility was an inward posture. It was that spirit wrought disposition of the heart that has come to see and delight in the glory of God and then rightly sees everything else, especially himself and his own reputation in light of that. With the realization that you're not the main character in this story. And it's a place anyone else, especially yourself, in that position that should be reserved and must be reserved for God alone. It's not only an incredible offense against him. It is the height of short-sighted stupidity. It's to rob yourself of joy. It's to settle for the applause of men and the honors that can be bestowed on you by ordinary common men in exchange for the glory of God. It's to trade down. And so that's humility. And then there's gentleness. And, and unlike this inward posture that seems to be humility, gentleness is more of an outward demeanor. It's the way in which a humble heart interacts with the world around them. It's a tenderness and a carefulness towards others. And the picture that I kept bringing myself and you back to was the way in which we deal with our own children. With a, with a tenderness and a desire for them to know God and to succeed in following after him. Never desiring to crush or to destroy them. Being willing to have the hard conversations because we care about the long game. And so it must not be mistaken for weakness or for fear of con conflict. But rather it is power and it is strength under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
It's a man who's been so strengthened in his inner being by the work of this spirit that they recognize, I don't need to impose force on you. I don't need to be domineering or controlling towards you to get you to act in a way that I want you to act. I've seen and I've trusted and I've believed. And I will leave you into the hands of God. And so there's a, there's a lot of crossover between these words. If you look at various translations, English translations of the Bible, you'll find that oftentimes these words are used almost interchangeably. Humility and gentleness and patience. They really do belong. I would call it just the same, the same family of, of Christian virtues. And when you take them all together, you know, we've, we've looked at the trees and what's the danger in looking at the trees too closely? You, you miss the forest. So if we step back for a moment and we just look at this broad picture that Paul seems to be painting for us, you'll immediately see a man that's never harsh. It's never selfish. It's never domineering or pugnacious or quarrelsome or violent or combative. A man who refuses to take himself too seriously. That's the one that's incredibly difficult for me. A man that refuses to take himself too, too uh, seriously or a man that doesn't have this, this put on of holiness that presents him as sullen and, and silent and sour. You know those grumpy believers? They really give themselves over to holiness and the best way they can show you just how holy they are is by walking around with a scowl on their face. Making you feel as though their disapproval is always upon you at all times. Now some people that's just their demeanor. Have you, have you ever seen that meme? It's got one of my favorite preachers standing behind the pulpit and the words above his head say, just remember, no matter what you've done, Paul Washer is always disappointed in you. <laughs> I love Paul Washer. I'm thankful for his ministry. But sometimes we can just come across as grumpy. So instead, we want to be the kind of people that just exude this easy, again, self-forgetting, just effortless joy. Where people walk away from us glad they've been with us. Where people feel free to mess up around us and to confess their sin. Where people recognize that they're not being used by you as some pawn and some little puzzle that you're building, but that you genuinely care about them for the sake of Christ. It's this, it's this deep and abiding serenity and tranquility that just seems to run underneath the surface the kind of the kind of joy and hope and confidence that only comes from the kind of man that knows that he serves a sovereign god the kind of man that's able to say my father is king and my father is good why then would I ever be anxious why would I ever be ill-tempered with you so there's a quote I posted on Facebook just to make sure none of you misunderstood it. The quote from C.S. Lewis, the horse and his boy. He's speaking of these Narnian lords, lords that, are, that are passing through town. He says that instead of being grave and mysterious, they walked with a swing and they let their arms and their shoulders go free. They chatted and they laughed. One of them was whistling. You could see that they were ready to be friends with anyone who was friendly and they didn't give a fig for anyone who wasn't. Shasta thought that he had never seen anything so lovely in all of his life. I told you one of my goals for myself in this new year was to just be a jolly guy. Free swinging, loose, 
easy, self-forgetful, while charging hard after real holiness at the same time. Freed up to genuinely con- care and have concern about others. Again, not, not trying to control you and mold you into to my image. I'm trusting you to your same God. We're going to bump into each other. We're going to step on each other's toes. We're going to offend each other. And that's all okay. I think that's the picture that he's painting for us here. And where do we see it most clearly? The obvious answer, the Sunday school answer, Jesus. That's not always the wrong answer just because that's the Sunday school answer. As a matter of fact, more often than not, that's the right answer. We see it in Christ. We see it first in his condescension. Is that not the height of humility? Leaving the glories of heaven to take upon himself the fullness of flesh and submit to humiliation and suffering and being despised and put to death, even death on a cross. But then we we see this incredible gentleness in the way that he deals with all those around him. We're talking about one who could set his face like flint towards Jerusalem and the cross. We're talking about one who is utterly holy and never compromising with regards to the law of God. We're talking about one who is willing to say wildly unpopular things while at the same time, at the very same time, he was meek and lowly of heart. At the very same time, the most egregious of sinners, the most fallen of men, the most weak of people, they knew themselves safe to just entrust the whole of who they are to him. And so I think that we do well not just to consider Christ Jesus as an example, although he is the example, but as I told you, going back to week one when we considered humility, let's just bask in that for a while and watch the way it transforms us. When I'm feeling not particular, particularly humble, not especially gentle, what's the best thing I can do? And behold the glory of God in the face of his son, Christ Jesus. And I could be reminded there that he does not view me as a burden or an annoyance. He has not grown weary of making intercession for me. He's not ashamed to call me brother. That despite all my failures and all my sin and all the, all the frustration that I build for those around me, he continually says, come to me. Come to me and I won't break you in two. Come to me and I won't snuff out your light. Come to me bruised and broken and used up and exhausted. Come to me like the Apostle John in the upper room and lead your, lean your head back against my breast. Come to me and just rest. And I'm confident that as we do this, as we rest in Christ Jesus and we behold his glory, That we will find these things as the fruit that they are. We will find these things just coming out in our lives. We'll find a greater desire for them, a greater ability to strive and to work and to put on these things like a cloak. At the same time, we find that they're just pouring forth from our heart because of the work that he's done. So I return to what Paul says here. He says, I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So Paul rounds out these these prepositional statements, these kind of three broad pictures. 
humility, with gentleness, and with patience. And so when you hear the word patience, I, I, I really do believe as we move from humility to gentleness to patience, each one of these, at least in the immediate sense, we have a, we have a pretty clear picture, more so of patience and of gentleness and more so of gentleness than of humility. But if we were to go around this room and ask, what do you, what do you understand this word patience to mean? Probably you would hear something about the ability to wait, the capacity to tolerate delay. Your, your kids, they ask you, how much longer till Christmas? And you tell them, 10 more sleeps, be patient. We understand it. Patience is, patience is this wisdom or this maturity that allows for delayed gratification. And this is in large part what the world means when they say that patience is a virtue. It's the ability to wait for the thing that you desire without getting angry or, or anxious, without taking matters into your own hands and acting foolishly to try and force things in a way that isn't gonna work. And so, one of the Greek words that is often translated as patience in the New Testament, it has a very similar tone to this. Hupomene is the word. It means to remain or to, to endure. It's patience with situations or with circumstances. So this is a picture of somebody that's, that's holding a steady course or somebody that's, you might say they're, they're playing the long game. It's a steadfast persistence that just, just keeps moving forward with the hope of reward, even when that reward is way off in the distance. Even when that reward is so off, it can't even be seen, so far off, it can't even be seen in the moment. It's I have charted a course and I will hold the course. I won't be distracted and I won't give up along the way. So we see this word used by Paul in his letter to the first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 1, 2. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, consistently mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and the steadfastness, that's the word, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't simply waiting to wait. It's waiting with a purpose. It's waiting because I'm hoping for something good. Not only am I hoping for something good, I'm hoping for something better than whatever good I have right now. See, when I've got a belly full of food and I lay down in my bed to go to sleep at night, I don't need patience in that moment. I'm where I want to be. Patience is required when I know there's something better off in the distance. There's something better over the horizon. That's what it means to have steadfastness of hope. And so we find that picture really running all throughout that beautiful portion of Hebrews 11, where we read about these, these heroes of the faith, we're told that they, they have greeted God's promises from afar. That many of them, they, they, would have, they have died before fully realizing the things that God has promised to them. Men like Noah and Abraham and Moses. Despite all their failures. I believe it's Hebrews 6 where the author holds up Abraham as a picture of patience and I hear that and I go, Abraham, the patient one? Abraham, the one that received a promise from God and because God was delayed in delivering, he took the slave woman as his own and she bore him a child? That Abraham? That Abraham is the picture of patience? Yes. Because this kind of patience isn't a perfect patience. It isn't a sinless patience, but it is the patience that when all is said and done, endures. 
when all is said and done, doesn't give up on, doesn't wander away, doesn't throw up his hands and assume that God will never act just because he's delayed in acting. That's the picture we see of all of these Old Testament saints. Ultimately, they endured. They rejected the fleeting pleasures of sin in exchange for this better country that was far off. This better country that had been promised to them. So I think that this, as you go through and you think about many of these Old Testament believers, this is a picture of true, heaven-minded patience and steadfastness. What's it grounded in? It's grounded in a belief that God cannot lie. It's grounded in a confidence that God's plans can't be thwarted. Not by your own sin, see Abraham. That God's plans can't be thwarted by your own sin, nor by death, see Abraham. Upon the mountain, willing to sacrifice his son. It's the belief that God doesn't lie and God can't be stopped. And therefore, I'm going to watch and I'm going to wait for God. I'm going to walk forward in steadfast faithfulness and obedience and assurance based on God, not my strength, based on his. This wasn't just the case for the Old Testament saints, though. This carries forward to us as well. I remind you of Romans 2 and the passage that we studied there when we considered humility. We read there in Romans 2, 7. To those who by patience, same word, steadfastness, endurance, patience. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He, that is God, will give eternal life. We're a people who have been called to patience. Even this side of the cross, even having seen the glory of God in the coming, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're still a people in waiting. We're still a people with a greater promise of greater rest and a greater country to come. So we're a people who wait, knowing that the fullness of this won't be realized in this lifetime. So what's our call? To continue in doing good. But not just doing good for good's sake. Doing good because we know that there's honor and there's glory and there's treasure that waits at the end of this for us. So we do this. We walk in obedient hope. Even when this obedience doesn't make any sense. It's, it's totally contrary to the human mind. Even when the world mocks you and entices you to just give up on that treasure and just take what we have right now. Take what we're offering you right here. But it's obedience in that, in the middle of all these taunts and in the middle of all these temptations, even and especially when your eyes can't see the thing that you long for. Romans 8.24 talks about this same thing. He, he talks about our eagerly waiting, the, the fullness of our adoption and the redemption of our bodies. He says, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The truest form of patience, the truest form of godly endurance and steadfastness is a willingness to say, I'm not going to trust my lying eyes. I'm not going to trust my deceitful heart. I'm going to trust the promises of my God. And so I wait. Patiently, I wait. In hope, I wait for a thing I've not yet fully seen. That's really what this all comes down to. When I find myself lacking patience, this is a question we probably should ask to the whole of our Christian life. When we find ourselves walking in disobedience, when we find ourselves becoming anxious and upset 
and fraught with all kinds of worry as we find ourselves in this pattern of patience, this time of waiting, the question that we need to ask ourselves over and over and over again is, do I trust God or not? My life will reveal whether those are just words or not. But it always comes down to, do I trust God? Do I believe he keeps his promises? And do I believe he's capable on making good on them? So this then brings us to a question, doesn't it? I ask the question, and if you're actually listening to what I've said, you just ask the question of yourself, do I trust God or not? And then you, in the 10 seconds that came after that, you've examined your own life and you're feeling pretty bad. So the question is, why doesn't everyone joyfully wait? Why isn't everyone patient? Patient. Apart from the fact that patience, just like all the rest of these traits, are works of the Holy Spirit. You can't white knuckle it. You can't just bear down and bring it. It can't be, can't be born by the flesh. We're completely dependent upon the Spirit of God in order to bring these things. But why don't all Christians... Why don't everyone to whom the promise of glory and an eternal inheritance, how come everyone that has Hebrew 11 faith that is assurance of the things hoped for and conviction of the things not seen, why don't we all have patience in spades? Why is patience such a rare virtue? Why is it so hard to come by? Well, the answer is mostly, primarily, because of the fact that the place in which we wait it has fallen in sin. It's under the power of the evil one. This is why Paul in that same passage that I just referenced from Romans 8, this is why Paul in that same passage where he calls us to patience, he speaks about not only creation, but we ourselves groaning inwardly as we await our full and final adoption. There's a groaning that happens because of the fallenness, not just out there somewhere, but the fallenness in here. Our own sin and our own weakness. That's what makes patience patience, and that's what makes endurance hard. Because this world is corrupt and broken and sad and ugly and painful. And our own flesh is making war against us. And then almost as a taunt, we have tasted the first fruits of something better to come. We're able to look at the brokenness out there. And we're able to look at the brokenness in here and know there's going to come a time when it's not going to be this way. You see, if you don't have something that you long for in the distance, the waiting is just where you live. But if you've tasted it, if you've greeted it from afar, and you know there's going to come a day when all things will be made right and there'll be no more sadness or sorrow or sin or death or decay or war or tears or any of the rest, it almost sits there as a taunt against your own weakness and against the broken world that's all around you. So in short... I think I can speak for all of us when I say, yes, I believe that God has made these promises and I believe that he can and will deliver on every single one of them. More than this, I believe that the treasure that awaits me in glory is greater than I could ever imagine. Very few things in life live up to the billing. But I trust that what he has for me is greater than I could ever imagine. But the problem is that I can't yet fully see the thing. And the problem is, the longer I wait, the worse my eyesight gets to, starts to become. The less time I spend trying to get a glimpse at it. And because the place we wait is messy and broken and hard, 
And, and because in addition to this, we've got a world around us that's offering us all kinds of counterfeit treasures that can be had without patiently waiting. I've got the world around me offering me these lesser treasures saying, why wait for that when you can eat this today? Why store up for that when you can have 10 times that much right now? And not only this, but we're not just sitting in a waiting room. As I started to paint this picture of patience in my head, I found myself inadvertently going to a picture of just a man in a waiting room. I'm just, I'm waiting. I'm watching and I'm waiting for my father to come through the door with treasure in his hands. And so what is my job? It's to fight the temptation to quit watching and to quit waiting. It's to fight the temptation to fill my bulk, my belly full of these other things that taste good on the lips, but or go sour in the stomach. But then the more I thought about it, I realized that's a really stupid picture. Because the Christian life isn't sitting in a room. It's fighting a fight and running a race. Running the kind of race that only those who endure to the end will find themselves saved. So it's not just I'm running a race for a season. I'm running a race until my dying breath or Christ comes back, whichever is first. And I'm not just running this race. But I'm running this race while being attacked by a dragon or a serpent who knows my sin and knows my weakness and is constantly trying to convince me that if God really loved me, he wouldn't make me wait like this. If God really loved me, he wouldn't make the waiting so hard. And so again, he discourages us to give up. He discourages us to stop waiting and he promises us, I've got a way to make the waiting easier. Fine, don't abandon the hope. Just take the helps. I've got an easier path for you right here and now. You want the glory, great. You want the honor, great. You want the unfadeable treasure, great. Now let me help you get there my way. So exercising patience, it requires very real suffering. That's why that word is so often translated exactly like that. You've heard this. The old-timey way of speaking of patience, what is it? Long-suffering. Don't get cute. What do you think long-suffering is? It's suffering for a long time. It's refusing to buckle under the pain and, and to find a way out. Isn't that so much of sin? How much sin in your life has come as a result of you saying, I just don't want to suffer anymore? Whether it was mental suffering, physical suffering, suffering re relational suffering, I just don't want to suffer any longer. And so I'm going to take this path. And so it's in not just endurance, but it's long suffering. And again, sometimes it's merely the suffering of having to fight the temptation while we wait for the thing, having to fight the temptation of taking hold of something lesser or of obtaining the thing we want in a way that dishonors God. But in addition to this, there's great suffering that comes again because of the nature of the world around us. Because in this waiting, God leads us through suffering and through pain and through fire. How much of this hasn't come because you were quick to jump at the first pretty looking thing that came along is because you were waiting on God to bring restoration and healing and, and some sense of joy right now. And he was just long in waiting. He was long in bringing it. So, one of the Glorious yet often overlooked beauties of this, the relationship between patience and suffering. Is that suffering isn't just the road down which patience leads you. 
What I mean by this is it's, I think for some people, they have this idea that the Christian life, the Christian walk, the walk of hope and the life of patience, that just one of the unfortunate but necessary byproducts of this life is suffering. They're not really necessarily related. It's just, hey, this is just the path you got to walk down. The world's fallen. What else are you going to do? But scripture tells us something altogether different. Scripture tells us that the suffering is actually a way by which God prunes us to produce the patience. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So, so what we find at the beginning of chapter 5 here is the gospel. That's the therefore, right? The truth of what Christ has done. And what we find on the back end of this, beginning in verse 6, is the gospel. Glorious truth about what God has done and the peace that we have and the reconciliation that's been brought. But right in the middle of it, we find this. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice. He just said we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Down in verse 11, he's going to say, we rejoice in God through Jesus Christ our Lord because we've received reconciliation. So you've got a couple of rejoicings here. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff you rejoice about. I'm reconciled to God. I've seen and I, and I desire the glory of God. Now listen to what he says we rejoice in. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, same word, steadfastness, perseverance, long-suffering, patience. Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You notice that Paul doesn't say we suffer in spite, excuse me, we rejoice in spite of our suffering. He says we rejoice, we celebrate, we find joy in our sufferings. But you notice what he follows that up with? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing. How many times have I told you, because the Bible tells you, the key to enduring well, the key to walking well, the key to the worthy life is what you know. Not just head knowledge. What are you resting in? What truth do you know? Theology matters. What has Christ done and what has he promised? What has he accomplished on our behalf? How, how do I rejoice in my suffering? Because I know something. And specifically what I know is that this suffering produces endurance and it starts a whole chain that leads to the immediate hope of glory. The kind of glory that doesn't leave you empty and embarrassed because you put your hope in a vapor or in a mist. So how do I rejoice in the suffering? Because I know the end of this suffering is glory. But more than this, I know that by that suffering, he is working something in me. He's producing this thing called patience. And that might sound like circular logic, right? Okay, so what you're telling me is I have to be patient in order to endure suffering. But I have to endure suffering in order to have patience? Now, Sometimes you just got to come to scripture and say, because he's God and he says so. And we come right back to that question. Do you trust him? But I do think that we have some pictures. I do think we have some, 
some physical pictures of, of something similar to this, I want you to think about exercise. I don't run. I don't want to run. I don't like to run. You can't make me run. If a lion shows up and it requires running, y'all are probably safe because I will just lay down and let him eat me first. But I do kind of like to, I like to lift things up. And one of my favorite exercises, a thing called the yoke walk or the yoke carry. And it's basically just a big piece of metal. And you put weights on it. And you load it down with weight. You put it on your shoulders. And guess what you do with it? You walk. And you put enough weight on that thing and you can hardly take a step. I'm talking step. By step. Your, your whole thing is quivering and shaking. And the good news is you're only lifting the thing this high off the ground. So you just set it down when you're done. But you're picking the thing up and you need strength to carry the thing. You need strength to carry the yoke. Well, guess what happens as you're horribly walking with the yoke? You're building strength. You need strength to carry the thing, but you don't have strength until you carry the thing to build the strength. And one of the most fundamental rules to working out and to getting stronger and to building muscle is if you only ever do things you know how to do, you never get stronger. If you can lift 10 pounds and you just go to the weight room and consistently lift 10 pounds, nothing's really going to happen. It's when you can lift 10 pounds and you go in and you lift 12 pounds. You're strained beyond your capacity. You'll hear people say stupid things during times of suffering. They'll look to somebody and they'll say, brother, God brought this to you because he knew you were strong enough. He brought this to you because he knew you were capable. Come on, man. He brought you to this. Because through this, he's going to strengthen you. He's going to build you up. He's going to fortify endurance. He's going to produce character. Through that character, you're going to realize this thing is real. This thing is legit. My hope is not a joke. I really have hope in him. And that hope is really placed in something worth placing my hope in. So that through this pressure, through this weight, through this suffering, he's producing something. He's sharpening us and fortifying us and steadying us. Like a faithful potter, like a master vine dresser, he's, he's molding you. And the chief instrument through which he molds you is a thing called suffering. The pressure and tribulation and pain of suffering. So why do we rejoice in it? How are we able to find joy in it? Because we recognize it's a productive pain. It's not meaningless. It's not purposeless. It's actually producing something in you. So that all of a sudden what we recognize is long-suffering and patience is a whole lot more than just deferred gratification. It's a process in which you're being made like Christ. So that as you wait and you press on and you trust these promises that you've seen from afar, as you run and you feel like a fool as you continue to drop the weight, you recognize that what God's doing in this moment is he's breaking your love for the world. He's increasing your love for him and the promises that he's made. He's preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. So you rejoice. While you lay on the floor and try to catch your breath, you rejoice. While your legs ache and wobble, you rejoice. While tears run down your face, you rejoice. While you don't know how you're going to get up tomorrow morning, I rejoice. Because I know that in all these things, he's doing me good. He's disciplining me. And he's shaping me and he's pruning me and he's doing it all <coughs> through the loss of otherwise good things. 
Beloved, that's all suffering is. You know this. What is suffering? It's the loss of things you want. You take away something I don't want, it's not called suffering. You take away something I want, the more I want it, the more I love it, the deeper the suffering, the sharper the pain. But God says, I'm going to remove these things to cause you to run better for your good. You remember in Hebrews 12, this this call to, to faith, this call to running the race, the author there says, therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. We've been built to run. And there's some things that just don't make us better runners. Say, whoa, 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 but but they're good things. Sure, yes, yes. We're not saying that you're supposed to call good things bad things. We're not saying that you're not supposed to, to enjoy those things. To praise God for those things, to delight in those things as long as they're here. But if the God of the universe says, I'm going to remove these so you can run better. I'm going to remove these so that you can endure more. What fools will we be to curse him? To do anything other than delight in the work that he's doing. So you see, there's so much to be gained in this long suffering, in this patient endurance. But. Here's where we get to this morning's text. That was my intro. Here's where we get to this morning's text. Because any of you that have ever tried to run this race, any of you that have ever tried to endure, any of you that have ever seen the hope of glory off in the distance and really pursued it, you know that the difficulties in this race, they're not confined to just the delays that you experience. And the difficulties, they are not confined just to situations and circumstances and impersonal things like health and finance. Those aren't the only things that that increase our affliction in the here and now. As, As a matter of fact, oftentimes one of the greatest difficulties and the greatest challenges to pressing on and rejoicing in hope is enduring the people around you. How often is it true that the greatest suffering we have, the greatest pain we have, doesn't come from a hurricane or from cancer, but from people, and especially from the people that we love? Go back to the picture of us running. You're you're running a race, and the, the flaming arrows of the enemy are coming, and there's your own weakness and your own sin, and there's traps all around you, and you keep... You keep finding all these exit ramps that you could just take and it would just make the suffering stop at least for a moment. And you're you're trying to run the race and you're giving everything you have to it. You're trusting and maybe even you're starting to find a little bit of joy. But the problem is you're not running the race alone. You're in a crowded marathon. You're surrounded by other people. And guess what? They suck at running. And through carelessness or through clumsiness, Or maybe through malice, they keep falling down in front of you and tripping you up. And you want to tell them, just let me go run my race alone and get out of my way, man. It's hard enough without you sinning against me. It's hard enough without you tripping me up. It's hard enough without you falling down the road before me. So that's why he calls us. Here in the middle of this context of unity and and, and the work that he's doing in the church. That's why he calls us to endure with patience. 
This is a, it's an altogether different Greek word, although from the same family that he uses, and this is the patience, not with situations or with circumstances, but patience with people. It's a willingness to endure their sin and their weakness and their provocation. That's why it's often paired. You see it here paired together with bearing with one another in love. The word forbearance and this word for patience, they often come together. And we see it, of course, firstly in God's patience towards man. Romans 2, 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness was meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience is seen in his giving us space and time to repent. We also see the same word used in Romans 9, Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? We see God's patience. His patience, by the way, is driven by his providential plan. Patience is driven by a zeal for his own glory. But we see his patience in the fact that he hasn't consumed us all in our sin. His wrath hasn't broken out against us in our rebellion. And so we see this patience in the life of God, in, in the heart of God, where he's, he's willing to delay his wrath, even as our offenses, they just they pile up. Driven by his zeal for his own glory and his love for man, he restrains himself. And it's a thing that's grounded in the very nature of God. It's a thing that's got to be built in us. It's a thing that's got to be built up and worked by the power of the Holy Spirit. It comes natural to God. It's an extension of his mercy. Isn't this the way he identified himself to Moses? The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, patient, willing to endure with man, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So we look first to God and we ask, we ask of God, look, how much have we seen, ask ourselves, I'd rather say, how much have we seen in his patience towards Israel? How much do we see in his patience towards us? And so therefore, as those who have received this kind of patience and mercy, those of us that have come to repent, we should have a similar display of patience with one another. Patience towards man for all those same reasons. But we don't just stop there. We look to Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Now, implicit within there is the idea that people are going to mess up. They're going to revile. They're going to offend. Sometimes on accident. Sometimes people are just clumsy, but sometimes maliciously with evil intent and a desire to destroy you. And he says, even to these, you do good. Isn't that the question that he asks? If you only do good for people that do good for you, if you only do good for people that are easy to be around, what credit is that for you? What benefit do you receive from that? That's the way sinners act. But when you do good for those that curse you, when you patiently endure with those who are clumsy and continue to hurt you, isn't this what it means to be like Christ? Seeking out opportunities to do them good. And that's exactly what we see. We see it in the heart of God. As he continues to do good for people, he causes rain to come and food to come and healing to come and wealth to come. He continues to do good for people that curse his name and will continue to curse his name for all eternity. 
He's not just doing good because he knows that all of these will someday come to repent. Sometimes some of his greatest immediate and earthly good is given to people that will curse him all the way through the finish line. See this in God. We see this in his Christ. What do we see of Jesus hanging on the cross? As the mockery and the torture was hitting its, its crescendo. You got thieves mocking and cursing and making fun of him. You got people down below. He saves others. He can't save himself. And yet we see him. He does refuse to call down angels. He refuses to come down off the cross. Instead, what does he cry out? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When someone offends me, I'm doing a good job not breaking out an imprecatory psalm on their face right there and cursing them to hell. And Christ Jesus, and by the way, my impatience, my intolerance, my frustration with others, it only grows as I get hungry or tired or in pain. As Christ Jesus hung upon the cross, he cries out to the Father, for the sake of those who are persecuting and crucifying him and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Do you realize what this forgiveness would cost if extended? He's not saying, Father, overlook the offense and let's forget this whole thing happened. In the economy of God, every single sin is paid for. Either by the sinner in hell or by Christ on the cross, which he in that moment hung. Do you understand? Christ Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is looking to those who are crucifying him. And he's saying to his father, credit that to my account. Pour the wrath that you owe them on my head right now. The same Christ who is in the garden, sweating blood and crying to the father saying, if there's any other way to do this, let's do it that way. It's not my will to drink from this cup. Please let it pass. That same Christ said, fill her up for their sake. Do you see it? These people murdered the Lord of glory. And he intercedes. Father, open their eyes and let them see. Let them not only see my glory, but let them come to enjoy in my glory. So much of what I do is I just want people to know how foolish they are, how badly they've messed up and how badly they've hurt me. What Christ Jesus says is, don't just let them see me as I am. Let them be as I am. Let them come into the fullness of my joy. Let them in, bask in my glory. Let them be glorious along with me. Let everything that I deserve by right, let it be bestowed upon them. So surely you see then that this is the essence of true Christian patience. That's why we're going to come back next week, God willing, to consider what it means to bear with one another in love. Not contempt, not annoyance, not resentfulness, in love. Especially whenever you realize that the Apostle Paul is talking about life within the people who have already been forgiven. Surrounded by a bunch of people for whom Christ has already died. He's already paid for the sin that they've just committed against you. You're not having to ask for God. God, pay for his sin against me. He already paid for it. Do you understand? So as you're surrounded by this family of people who have come to repent and have come to see Christ as he really is. And then we come to those moments where offense happens and it will. I had in my notes here, I was going to say, if you sit 
If we do anything other than just sit in this room for one hour a week, people are going to offend you. People are going to hurt you. You don't even have to get out of this room for you to get frustrated with people and annoyed with people and angry with people. People for whom Christ died. He said, my joy won't be complete until they're with me. Until they see my glory and they become glorious. Should that not drive us then, if we're going to be like Christ, to look to these people in their weakness and in their failure and in their frailty and in their purposeful sin. In those moments where they purposely harm you, do we not then say, I I want to honor God in this and I want to treasure his promises and more than my right to be offended and more than the satisfaction of telling you in this moment how much you've offended offended me, I just want you to enjoy Christ with me. Therefore, I'm not just going to tolerate you. I'm not just going to call a truce. I'm not just going to say, you go over there and run your race and I'm going to stay over here and run my race. No, we're a family and we run together and we seek to do each other good. We had, our, we had our first dust up of the year and upward yesterday, and it, and it happens. It happens every, every year. But you want to know what my immediate concern was in that first dust up? How we relate to each other. I care about the world. This is an outreach event. I care about the world. I want the world to come and see Christ. I want the world to come and know Christ. I want the, want, want the people to know that the, the people of God care for them and love them and are patient with them. But more than any of that, my immediate thought is we're a family and we're running together. And I can't just say, Eli, you go run over there and I'll run over here and I'll see you in heaven. No, we're running together right now. And so I'm seeking to do you good. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for opportunities to cover an offense with love, to strengthen you when you are weak, to encourage you when you're slack, to be patient with you at all times. Never with a smug sense of superiority. Did you ever get sat at the kid's table at a wedding or a Christmas event, but you were the one adult there? You were probably like 22 or something. They still thought of you like a kid and you went and sat at the kid's table. But the whole time you need to make clear to those kids, you're not kids like them. So you ask them what their favorite beer is or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You don't know. That's right. Because I'm a grown up. You're not a grown up. (laughs) It's not that. It's not that. It's in love coming alongside them and finding consolation in the fact that their sins have already been paid for and the fact that your own joy will grow as they come to see the glory of Christ and be glorious themselves. And I think this is exactly what Paul had in mind going back to the letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. There's three different kinds of people here. There's idols. There's lazy people. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So what do we do? We admonish them. What do we do with the faint-hearted? Well, we encourage them. What do we do with the weak? We help them. What do you do to all of them? You're patient with them. You seek to do good. You seek to strengthen. You seek to exhort. You seek to bring them along. You seek to help them run well. That's the picture. How are you doing with it? Do you find yourself just running alone on a treadmill? Do you find yourself purposefully and intentionally seeking out ways to help others run well? 
Do you find yourself fighting against every possible urge to take up an offense and to get angry? Do you find yourself not satisfied unless the person that you've forgiven knows you forgave them and knows how badly they've offended you? And so the question is, do you even trust God? Father, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for Christ Jesus and in him the ultimate expression of patience we could ever know. Not just tolerating our foolishness and our sin, but loving us. Coming and seeking to do us good. Not just to do us good, but to do us good at incredible personal cost. He didn't just cover our sins. He covered it by his own blood. He didn't just wipe away our sins. He paid the price. So Father, my, my request of you this morning is that you would give us a heart like this. We don't need to pay for the sins of others. They've already been paid for. Therefore, we don't need to keep a ledger of them either. We don't need to keep a tally. So Father, I pray that you help us to endure each of us. Walk, you know, a person that walked into this room that's not in the middle of some season of suffering, some more intense than others. I pray that you give us endurance, the ability to suffer long, trusting in the hope of glory. While simultaneously, Father, I pray that you help us to help each other to run well. Father, it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.